0: to take advantage of our opportunity to have children's church. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. Many of you may have heard of Adoniram Judson. That's a mouthful. Adoniram Judson was a missionary from America who traveled to Burma, that's modern-day Myanmar, in the early 1800s. And as a missionary traveling to Burma from America, his wife on the way there suffered a miscarriage, and they lost their first child. Upon arriving in Burma, they were told that this is a very difficult mission field, and you're probably not going to have very much Success. And so they spent four years learning the language before they even had one worship service. 17 years of ministry, 10 people came to faith in Christ. In 1824, war broke out, and so Adoniram was put in prison for 17 months. His wife was beaten. Dragged and put in prison. And she eventually died of disease herself in prison. Their three children died six months later. After his release from prison, he remarried a widow. And she died en route back to America in hopes of getting better medical attention. Now here's a man who left the comforts of America to do what God had called him to do and go to Burma and experienced all of this heartache. William Carey was the father of modern missions. He was also a Baptist, but not from America. He was a Baptist from England. And he went to India in 1793. He went seven years in India without one person coming to faith. In Christ. And he spent all of this time trying to translate the language of Sanskrit, is what they spoke back then, into uh, the Bible, into their language. And so, all of this work of pouring his life into translating, all of his work was in an office building that the locals who were hostile to Christianity burned down one night. Seven years of work translating the Bible burned down in one moment can you imagine how discouraged he would be well that following sunday he preached from the psalm that said be still and know that i'm god and he had two points in his sermon point number one god has the sovereign right to do what he pleases point number two we need to receive what god has the sovereign right to do according to what he pleases here's the providence of how god works these things together Adoniram Judson went over to India to learn under William Carey. And the two of them developed a friendship. And so William Carey wrote back to America to encourage Americans to support overseas missions. And because of the partnership between Iron and Judson and William Carey, they launched in America what was the first mission board. In 1814, you had the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination of the United States of America for Foreign Missions, later known as the Triennial Convention. We as Southern Baptists are a product of that missions movement. A British Baptist and American Baptist who followed God's call upon their life to go to a nation, Burma, India, where they experienced tremendous hardship, tremendous difficulties. And both men went in obedience to what God had called them to do. And so you would think that obeying God would not bring any difficulties in your life, would it? When you obey God, things are supposed to go great, aren't they? Have you ever suffered doing what you knew was right. You were doing what God had called you to do. You were doing what Christ had commanded you to do, and as you obeyed Jesus, you suffered for it. You experienced difficulty, even when you were right in the center of God's will. Maybe you're a teenager here this morning, and and at high school, you've made the commitment, I'm going to stand for Jesus, I'm not going to compromise my faith. I'm not going to party and do all the things that teenagers do. And you're made fun of. You're not one of the cool kids. Because you've decided to stand up for Jesus. And you suffer for it. Maybe you're a single lady here this morning. And you have high standards on what it means to have a biblical husband. And you're not willing to lower those standards. And so you get passed by by a lot of men that may not want that. And you may suffer for doing the right thing in your singleness because you want God's best for you. Or maybe it's on the workplace, and you've made a commitment to not play the games. I'm not going to play the political games. I'm not going to do things unethically. I'm going to play by the rules, and you do that at your workplace, and everybody else seems to get the promotion, and you get passed over, and you seem to suffer for doing the right thing. When you choose to obey Christ... There may come times when you suffer discouragement, you may suffer frustration, you may suffer loneliness, and maybe you may even suffer persecution. Now, why do I bring up these feelings of discouragement and suffering? I'm going to ask you a more important question. How do you handle it? How do you personally handle those times when you suffer, when you're discouraged, when you feel lonely, when you feel frustrated for doing the right thing, for obeying Jesus. Well, today's passage illustrates for us this reality. So I want to just give you the big idea of what our passage is for today. And it's this. Trusting in God's sovereign goodness helps you handle discouragement and suffering. Trusting in God's sovereign goodness helps you handle discouragement and suffering. So what I want us to do today is I want to look at three major scenes in Exodus that will show us these truths. So here's scene one. The pleasure, the pleasure of celebration and excitement. The pleasure of celebration and excitement. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Remember last week was a difficult sermon. God did not kill Moses because his son was not circumcised. And so Zipporah, his wife, had to come in and circumcise his son and God let him go. And it was a very weird story. And let's just pick up right where that left off with the, the pleasure of celebration and excitement. So let's pick up in chapter 4, verse 27. Chapter 4, verse 27. Then the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. This is an exciting time. Remember what God told Moses? Aaron's going to come at just the right time to meet you after 40 years at Mount Sinai. And that's exactly what happened. Aaron shows up on the scene. He and his brother are reunited. They, they kiss. It's a, it's a time of enjoyment. They go back to Egypt They go to the elders of Israel. They perform the signs. And notice the crescendo of the excitement in verse 31. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited, the Lord had seen their problems, the Lord had finally come through. After 400 years of being in slavery, God is finally coming through on his promise. This is the greatest news this nation had heard in 400 years. They're on cloud nine. They're on the mountaintop. They're unified in purpose. It's excitement. They're celebration. God is finally going to deliver us. It's awesome. It's a celebration. So chapter 4 ends with excitement, joy, anticipation. Things are going to go really well. It's the best news we've heard in 400 years. So you would think that chapter 5 would begin with immediate victory. Chapter 5 would begin with God just coming in and, and making things happen to where there's no problems. There's no frustrations. There's no difficulties. Wouldn't this celebration last forever? By the way, isn't God obligated to make you happy all the time? Isn't God obligated to have you have a stress-free life with no problems, no financial issues, no sicknesses, no problems whatsoever? Because your breakthrough is just coming right around the corner, right? And you deserve what's coming to you, right? That's what you hear all the time, isn't it? Christian broadcasting all over the Internet. You deserve a stress-free, pain-free sick-free life, because God owes you that. He owes it to you. See, here's the point. When things go really well, we're very quick to praise God, aren't we? When things are going really well, we love to praise God. But oftentimes, when things are going well, we pay so much attention to the gifts that God gives us that we take our eyes off the giver of the gifts. You see, Our eyes should always be on the giver of the gifts, not the gifts themselves. Now, it's good to be blessed. It's good when things are going well. We enjoy those times. We praise the Lord during those times. And that's what Israel's doing here. They're excited. God's seen their affliction. They're worshiping. Moses has come in as the deliverer. Things could not get any better. That's how chapter 4 ends. Let's see how chapter 5 unfolds for us. So here's scene 2. If scene 1 was the pleasure of excitement and celebration, here's scene 2, chapter 5. The pain of resentment and doubt. The pain of resentment and doubt. There's a shift going on here. It goes from pleasure to pain real quick. Let's read Exodus chapter 5 together. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw, To make bricks as in the past, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily tasks each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet you say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you're idle, you're idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who who were waiting for them and came out to Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now, we don't know how much time has elapsed, but here's the moment of truth. Aaron and Moses go before the Pharaoh, and they they give the big ask, right? What's the big ask? Let my people go. Let my people go. But I want you to notice something in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Who's speaking here? Is Moses speaking here? No, it's God. This is the very first time in the Bible that phrase, thus says the Lord, shows up. Thus says the Lord. So it's none other than the Lord God, the one who appeared to Moses out of the burning bush, he's demanding Pharaoh let them go. He's commanding Pharaoh that they go. So this is the sovereign God of the universe making a demand on the most powerful man in the world. Let my people go. Thus says the Lord. Now, verse 2, you see the response of Pharaoh's heart. Look at verse 2. What does Pharaoh say? Who is the Lord? Now, the way it's worded in the Hebrew language conveys that it's almost as if Pharaoh laughs off God. Doesn't take this demand very seriously. Now, it could mean that Pharaoh didn't know who the Lord was because he had a pantheon of Egyptian gods and goddesses, and he didn't understand who Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, was, but no, more more to the point, it's, why should I listen to this God? Who is your Lord? He can't tell me what to do. I'm Pharaoh. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm the Lord, not the God of Israel. You know, as I was studying this this past week, it it brought to my mind Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Pharaoh has just set himself up against the Lord and has laughed at the Lord. You don't tell me what to do. Who who are you? And then the psalm says, he who's in heaven laughs. Who's going to get the last laugh between Pharaoh and the Lord? Well, you know the rest of the story. But right now, Pharaoh is hardened. Hardened. Now this should be no surprise to Moses. Two occasions, what did Pharaoh what did God say would happen to Pharaoh, that he wouldn't cooperate? Go back to chapter three, verse 19. We've already seen this, but just go back there. Chapter three, verse 19. God has already told Moses the first time, "But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Moses is going to be difficult for you. He's not going to let you go." Chapter four, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So what does Pharaoh do? He makes life more difficult on the Israelites. No longer are they given straw. they got to go find their own straw, which would take a lot more time, but yet the production of the bricks remained the same. In other words, it was an impossible task. And Pharaoh says, the only reason you're doing this is because you guys are lazy. You're a lazy workforce. You want to go out into the the wilderness and and worship your God just to get off work. You're lazy. But notice what he says in verse 9. Let heavier work be laid on them that they may labor at it and pay no regard. To lying words. Now you have to understand what's going on here. Pharaoh is accusing God of being a liar. Your God is lying to you, Moses. Israelites, you're listening to lying words. Don't listen to the words of the Lord. Now that That statement is an echo of the serpent's statement in the garden, is it not? Where else have we heard those words? Don't listen to God's words. Don't trust God's words. Genesis 3, 1 through 4. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Did God really say that? And the woman said to the serpent, Now we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And here's the first lie. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You can't trust God. God's lying to you. Pharaoh is wicked. He laughs at God. He's stubborn against God, and he questions God's word. Now think about the Israelites for a moment. We had it bad for 400 years, and the minute this Moses guy steps up to the plate, we got it really bad. It's worse than it was. Verse 21, Moses and Aaron come out, and the elders are looking for him. They said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. It's your fault, Moses. You've put us in this situation. Let the Lord judge you. We're a stench. We're a stink. An interesting metaphor. We stink up the place to the Egyptians. We had it really bad, Moses, for 400 years until you showed up, and now we have it really, really bad. Just like that, it's gone from bad to really, really bad. pleasure of celebration and excitement has quickly turned to the pain of discouragement and frustration so let me give you a news flash in case you didn't already know it suffering is a reality of life even when you're obedient to god i wish this were not the case i wish it were different but you know the Bible, church history, and your own personal experience attest to the fact that even when you do things right, when you obey the Lord, you will suffer. Things will be painful. You'll experience trials, hardships. Think about Job for a moment. Now, we're going to look at the whole book of Job. We don't have time this morning. But what was jo- what's the book of Job about? Some people get the book of Job wrong. The book of Job is why do the righteous suffer? Job is not about why do people suffer. That's not the question in Job. The question in Job is not why am I suffering the consequences of my sin. That's not the question in Job. The question in Job is I've done nothing wrong. I've been obedient. Why do I still suffer? Why do the righteous suffer is the question of Job. And what was Job's response? Job 121, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So the New Testament addresses the reality of suffering, the reality of it. It's not a matter of if you're going to suffer, the question is when. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That word sufferings is also the the same word tribulation. It's an interesting Greek word. It's philipsis in the Greek. I just sometimes like to say that because it's an interesting word, philipsis. It means to to be squeezed like in a vice. You ever had that experience? Like a cartoon character, your head's in the vice and they keep putting the, you know, squeezing the vices. like Sometimes life feels like that. I'm being squeezed in this time of suffering. It's tightening its grip on me. James says this, James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, James doesn't define the trials. He just says trials of various kinds. We all have different trials. Emotional, physical, financial, relational, spiritual. All different manner of trials that we go through. First Peter chapter 1, 6-7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You've been grieved by them. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've been grieved by trials. How many of you, don't raise your hands, have cried many tears through trials? You've grieved. You've grieved through various trials. And then later on in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-13, he says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Peter says it's a fiery trial. He says don't be surprised when you go through it because it's, it's a part of life. It's a fiery trial. You know, when you go through trials, it's very easy to quickly criticize God, to shake your fist at God, to be frustrated at God. And again, you think, God must owe me. I'm doing everything right and God owes me. He owes me constant happiness. He owes me a stress-free life. He owes me a life of continual blessings. And so when we go through times of trial, what do we often ask? We ask God, why? Why? Now, how does Moses express pain and resentment and doubt? I'm about to read something from Moses, and we're not going to fault Moses. Okay, let's not fault Moses because you and I would do the same thing because we're humans. What's the human gut-level response to suffering? Think about Moses. God, you promised me that I'm going to go down to Egypt, let my people go. It's going to be a piece of cake, and all of a sudden, things have gotten really bad. What does God say to Moses, and what does Moses say to God? Let's look at this conversation. Let's look at the end of chapter 5, and let's look at Moses' response to God. Verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, stop right there. Moses goes directly to God. Which means you can go directly to God with your problems. You have permission to go directly to God and cry out to him. Let's let's, let's, let's listen to the pain in Moses' heart, the pain in Moses' voice as he cries out to God. Verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, "Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Do you hear the pain in Moses' voice? Three accusations he levels against God. First, God, you've done evil to this people. You've caused us to go through evil. So therefore, God, you must not be good. He calls God's goodness into question. God, you must not be good. Second, why did you even send me in the first place? God, you must not have a plan. He calls calls God's faithfulness into question. God, you're not faithful, and you must not have a plan. Not only are you not good, God, you're not faithful, and you don't even have a plan. And then the third charge. What does he say? The very last phrase of verse 23, you've not even delivered your people at all. God, you must not be powerful enough to do this. God, you're not good. God, you're not trustworthy. God, you don't have a plan. And God, you're not powerful. And I'm mad at you, God. Moses is doing what anybody in times of persecution, suffering, and discouragement would do. You cry out to God. Psalm 86, 6-7 says this. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Let's not fault Moses for doing what any of us would do. People all throughout the Bible... Job called out to God. David got mad at God. Habakkuk got mad at God. Jeremiah got mad at God. Many of the Psalms express anger at God. There's nothing wrong with asking God why. There's nothing wrong with crying out in anguish to God and pouring your heart out before God and asking God why. Pouring your heart out in discouragement. And Moses does it here, and you have permission to do it as well. And you see from the psalm here, Psalm 86, when you do that, the Lord listens. The Lord hears you. The Lord cares about you deeply. So you have permission to cry out to the Lord. But let me just give you a warning. Here's where it gets dangerous. With that being said, if you're not careful, the doubt... And the frustration can lead to two things which I think are spiritually dangerous. They can lead to bitterness or despair. And I think those two things are sinful. I don't think it's sinful to cry out to God and and express your your fear and your apprehension and your frustration. I think we're human and God, God wants that. But if it moves into bitterness or despair... You've gotten off the rails. It's spiritually dangerous. You don't want to succumb to that because eventually what that's going to lead to, bitterness and despair are going to lead to unbelief. You're going to begin to even doubt God's existence. So how do you, by God's grace, deal with the overwhelming discouragement? How do you deal with it? Well, here's the answer. It's scene three the promise of God's sovereignty. Chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand, He will drive them out of His land. I love the way God starts it. Now. Now, Moses, don't doubt me. Don't get better, Moses. don't give in to despair. Remind yourself who you've been crying out to. Who just appeared to you at the burning bush and said, I am who I am. Who is the consuming fire? What does God say? Now I'm going to demonstrate my power and my sovereignty and my goodness. In other words, you need to remind yourself of God's good sovereignty to overcome that pain and discouragement. So so here's what we need to remind ourselves of, because we forget. We forget. When you face trials of various kinds, remind yourself of the gospel truth that God is good. God is good. Psalm 16:2 I say to the Lord You are my Lord I have no good apart from you Psalm 31:19 Oh how abundant is your goodness which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in, in you and the sight of the children of mankind God is good. When you face trials of various kinds, you need to remind yourself of the gospel truth that God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Not only is he good, he's trustworthy. You can trust God. Psalm 28:7. "The Lord is my." Strength and my shield in him my heart trusts and I'm helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. In my heart, I trust in him, and he helps me. I'm helped. Psalm 56:4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? God is good, and God is trustworthy. You can trust God. When you face trials of various kinds, remind yourself that God has a plan and a purpose for you. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future. And a hope. Romans 8:28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God is good. God is trustworthy. God has a plan for you. And then number four, when you face trials of various t- kinds, remind yourself that God is. Psalm 68, 35. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. He gives power and strength to his people. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. His understanding is beyond measure. In other words, what you and I need to do is to daily remind ourselves of these gospel truths of who it is that we are truly worshiping. You see, I don't know what types of trials you're going through, trials of various kinds. Some of you, I know intimately well the trials you're going through. We all go through trials, of various kinds, sufferings, tribulations. And you can handle it in one of two ways. You can get frustrated, you can get bitter, you can get discouraged, and you can continue to criticize God and say, God, you owe me. Or you can rest in his sovereignty that God is in control, that God is good, that God is trustworthy, that God has a plan and a purpose for you, and that God is powerful. So as we approach the Lord's table this morning, what better time than now to celebrate the crucified Savior who shed his blood for you and loves you and provides for you in the gospel of grace. And so this morning, my question for you is, how is your view of God this morning? Do you have a big view of God? Is God big? Or is your suffering and your problems bigger? What's bigger this morning, God or your problems? Where's your focus? You see, no no matter what evil you may be experiencing right now, God is good. No matter what type of deception or chaos you might be experiencing right now, God is trustworthy. No matter what confusion or lack of purpose seems to be happening in your life right now, God has a plan and purpose for your life. And no matter how weakless and helpless and frail you feel right now, God is powerful to meet you in your need rest in those truths remind yourself of how sovereign God is I love what God says here now now see what I'm going to do Moses I'm gonna do it now and for some of you you need to hear that this morning You just need to hear God say now. Now I'm going to act. Now I'm going to remind you of my goodness, of my trustworthiness, of my purpose for your life, and my power now. So will we all rest securely, rest confidently in what our sovereign God can do to overcome that pain, that discouragement, that suffering, and only the way that he can do it. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. That you are a God who's good. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who's trustworthy. Lord, I thank, you're a, thank you, you're a God who has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And sometimes that doesn't seem like it's, it's coming together. And Lord, I'm thankful for your power. Lord, by your grace, help us who may be going through times of trial not to get bitter, not to give in to despair or unbelief. But Lord, would we be be encouraged by by your words to Moses now? Now I'm going to act. See what I'm going to do, Moses. See what I'm going to do in your life. Help us to have that perspective. Lord, prepare our hearts this morning to receive the celebration of the Lord's Supper with joy. We ask it in your name. Amen.